I got to tell you, uh, I went to uh, a gathering for the Aloha Pregnancy Center a year ago in May, and David Barton was speaking. I had first heard him speak down at the Capitol about 24 years ago, and uh, I was stunned with what he had to say about the Founding Fathers. And I followed his ministry through, through the years, and I just put in a request last May, if there's any chance he could ever speak here at our church. And lo and behold, I got an email here several months ago, and he could. And we're going to be blessed, and we have been blessed this weekend just hearing him. His son, Tim, spoke to our school the other day. You're going to get a, um, if, when it comes to history, you're going to get a semester in a sermon here, okay? Get ready. Brace yourselves. Um, you may not take it all in, but they have a catalog of materials available. David speaks on dozens of subjects. You'll be able to understand when he begins to talk that he has more than he's going to be able to share with us this morning. But I pray that you'll have a greater appreciation for God's Word, Scripture, uh, for our founding fathers, for our nation than you've ever had before. And it might be an introduction for some of us. I wish we could take this to our legislature. And I know they do present these kinds of things to members of Congress and such. But uh, we need to understand what David has to share. So David is with Wall Builders. He's the founder of Wall Builders, wallbuilders.com. And I go to that website, look it up, and take advantage of the resources they have. But let's welcome David to Kaimaki Christian this morning. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate it. Good to be with this morning. Uh, let me begin with a Bible verse. It's a fairly simple Bible verse. It's Proverbs 10.22. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So what we get is God's blessing is something that enriches our life. And as it turns out, some of the greatest blessings we have are things we kind of take for granted. We don't even notice them, really. Uh, I, I learned this from a founding father. This is one of the guys who signed the Declaration of Independence, one of the founding fathers of the United States, Dr. Benjamin Rush. He's a strong evangelical Christian. Uh, he started the first Sunday school movement in America. He started the first Bible Society in America. He's a political leader. But he also was a very sincere Christian, and we own about 100,000 documents from before 1812, so I own thousands of handwritten documents of the George Washingtons and John Adams and those others, including his works. And we actually have his prayer journal, and his prayer works, he's trying to be a good Christian and thank God for all the blessings he has. And so as I was reading through that one day, noticing all the blessings he was listening, he said something just, I don't know, kind of struck me different. He said, he said, I thank God for all the times I have not fallen downstairs. <laughs> huh? I got to thinking about it. I just walked upstairs here and I didn't fall and nobody noticed that. Now, if I'd fallen, you would have noticed that. The blessing is not if I'd fallen. The blessing was I didn't fall. And it's like when you take your car, you go out to get groceries or whatever, you get back, you didn't have a wreck, you don't think about it. Now, if you had a wreck, you would notice it. And so many of the best things in life are things we don't even notice until they're missing. You know, health until you lose it, or family until something happens, or a job until it's a change, or whatever. And I was thinking, you know, as Americans, we really are surrounded with more blessings than most people can possibly imagine, and we just kind of take them for granted. Uh, one of the ways of illustrating that is if you look at where the United States is now with our form of government, we're one of 195 nations in the world. This year at the UN is 195 nations, and so we're one of the 195. But we are a little different from the others, and that's not a statement of arrogance, not cockiness. It's just the way that it is. We've had the same government for 230 years, same piece of paper for 230 years. Now, to show you how unusual that is, in the same period of time that we've had one government, look at other nations, how often they have turnovers. Look at how many constitutions they've been through in the same 
period of time. Now, it never crosses our mind that we might have a different constitution or different government. For most nations, they go through a violent revolution every generation or so. Uh, actually, when you look at the length of constitutions in the history of the world, the average length of the average constitution is 17 years. Now, we've been 230 years. Average length is 17 with a violent revolution every generation or so. We haven't had that. We, we have, and we just kind of take that for granted. We, we're so stable, we just assume stability is natural. Instability is what's natural. Stability is not common. When you look even at where we are with creativity, there's a lot of ways to measure creativity. Now, America is 4% of the world's population, so we're not that, that big a population group. But every year... With technology, we produce more medical cures, more scientific discoveries, more technology. We produce more plays, more symphonies. We produce more of everything than the other 96% of the world combined. Now, 4% of the world's population should produce 4% whatever. But when you look at copyrights and patents and all the things whereby we measure, every year we've got more than the other 96. It's just unbelievable. I was recently over in Poland. And in Poland, uh, it, it is so striking over there how different things are. I mean, Poland is a Christian nation, very strong Christian nation, very godly leaders. But even so, they've gone through seven constitutions since 1917. And I was over in Germany next door. In Germany, I was staying at a five-star hotel. Pretty cool, except it sure would have been nice if they'd had Internet. Now, our Motel 6s have Internet. They're five-star hotels. It's so different being in, in, in nations like that, even good nations, that we just we take it for granted where we are. Even our prosperity, when you think about where we are as a people, we're 4% of the world's population. We produce 25% of the world's gross domestic product, and America doesn't produce more because it has greater natural resources because it doesn't. A lot of continents have more than we have. We just take what we have and make it go further. Now, this is something that historians long ago identified as American exceptionalism. And again, that's not a statement of arrogance. That's just a statement of statistics. This is where things are. But there's a reason we're there. I mean, there's a reason America is different from other nations. God's no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of nations. He'll bless any nation that will do things according to his standards. And so what we have in America out of the 195 nations, we, if you remember fruit trees, you know, you put a seed or a little seedling in the ground, and from that the fruit tree grows. We planted something in the ground in America two and, a, two and a half centuries ago that has grown into something different from every other nation in the world. Now, any nation could have planted those seeds, that same seed, and it would have grown in the same thing for them. But for whatever reason, we came up with a seed that we planted in civil government that was different from any other nation. And what was that seed? Well, when you go back to those who actually gave us our documents, like the, the guys at the Constitution Convention, 55 individuals wrote the Constitution of the United States, they came up with so many unique ideas in the Constitution that political science professors at Louisiana State University and Houston, University of Houston said, where did these guys get these ideas? Because nobody else was doing that at the time. And so they came out with a book that was called The Origins of American Constitutionalism. What they said was, we think if we go back and read the writings from that period and see who they quoted, we would know where they got their ideas. And so they did that. They took 15,000 writings from the founding era. They read those writings, and they found 3,154 quotes in those writings. They said, okay, now we know who they quoted. Let's track all the quotes back and see where the quotes came from. And when they did, they found that the single individual cited most often was a guy named Montesquieu. He's a French philosopher, wrote the Spirit of the Law since 1750. We used him a lot. So out of 3,154 quotes, 8% of them go to this one guy. That's a lot of influence. 
The number two guy on the list was William Blackstone, an English judge who wrote commentaries on the laws, a huge impact on our legal system. Number three on the list was John Locke at 2.9%. I mean, these are significant folks. When you have tens of thousands of people in the history of the world you could have quoted from to have 8% or 7.9%, that, that's big stuff. But what blew them away was the number one most cited source, far and above these guys, was the Bible. 34% of all those political quotes came out of the Bible. Turns out that the Bible had a huge impact on our thinking, on what we did in the documents. For example, you take some like John Adams. John Adams said the reason we have constitutional separation of powers. Now, government's already had three branches. That comes out of Isaiah 33, 22, three branches of government. But the reason we put checks and balance between our three branches, he said, was based on Jeremiah 17.9. He has multiple writings explaining how Jeremiah 17.9 gave us checks and balances between our branches. You also have James Kent, who's one of the two guys most responsible for our judicial system. And as you know, our judicial system has courts of appeals. We have what we call circuit courts. Where'd that come from? Well, circuit courts, according to the guy who helped found our judicial system, came out of 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, where it said that Samuel rode the circuit. He rode the circuit from Gilgal to Mizpah. Samuel judged all Israel and rode the circuit. So that's where we got circuit judges. In the same way, you look at the fact that we have a written constitution. Folks like Alexander Hamilton cited Exodus 31.18 as the reason that we have a written constitution. By the way, James Madison cited the same verse. So it turns out that these guys really look to the Bible in a lot. We don't hear that today. We don't get that in school. We're told basically we had a secular founding and it's a secular government. And you know, Even as Ron pointed out, you can't share our parking spaces, separation, church and state. We're secular. You guys are religious. That's not the way it started. Now, that's the way it's become in the last generation or so. That's just not the way it started. And I say that literally because I've been involved in seven cases of the U.S. Supreme Court that dealt with the religious expression in public. Can you have a prayer at a graduation? Can you have a prayer at a football game? I mean, so we, we see the conflict that's gone and how rapidly it's changed. And so when you look back to where this stuff come, came from and how, how much of it came out of the Bible, so then you see, okay, so that's what produced a seed that grew into something that no other nation had. Because no other nation has planted that kind of a seed at the basis for how it operates its government, even down to specific details. Now, when you look at the reason for it and the philosophy behind that, it, you really find it first, the, the philosophy that, that made us unique first appears in our very first governing document, the Declaration of Independence. That's our national birth certificate. It has 55 words that set forth the three principles of government. In the Declaration, they said, we're telling the world why we're doing what we're doing. And so they say there are three principles on which we are building American government. This, other nations haven't done this. We are. And it's striking that when you look at those 56 individuals that, that did the Declaration of Independence, 56 guys signed that. And by the way, I speak at a lot of law schools and universities, and I'll throw this picture up there and say, who do you recognize? Everybody can find Ben Franklin. Everybody can find Thomas Jefferson, and they can't go past that. I go, wait a minute. You have just found the two least religious guys. You don't know any of the rest? No, they have no clue that out of these signers, 29 of these guys had what we call Bible school or seminary degrees. So many of these guys were strong, strong, strong Christians. And it's interesting that when they wrote that declaration, this man, Richard Henry Lee, said that they copied, he said they, quote, copied the declaration from Locke's Two Treatises of Government. Now, I mentioned John Locke was one of the most cited guys. This is the book, The Two Treatises of Government. So this shows you how government's supposed to operate. So this is the book from which they copied the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, this book, I have original, it's less than an inch thick, less than 400 pages long, and it cites the Bible over 1,500 times to show how civil government's supposed to operate. 
Now, we would be hard-pressed to come up with 1,500 verses talking about civil government. But see, that's because we've been trained that, oh, no, separation of church and state, that's secular. We're spiritual, and we don't do government. Government's not secular. God's the one who created government. That was His institution. He ordained it. He tells us exactly how to run it. And so that's the book we use to do the declaration. So when you look at those 55 words, the first principle they set forth and told the world, they said, all men are created equal, and they're endowed by their Creator. Now, what this is, this is a public acknowledgement of God. Listen up, world. We're telling you there is a creator, and that we're all created equal before the creator. Now, this public acknowledgement of God is where the, today courts have a, a lot of trouble. Because I mentioned I've been involved in these Supreme Court cases. The court says, well, you know, we've got people that live here that don't believe in God. And so we, get, we have to be neutral. We can't take a position for God or against God. We just have to be neutral. That's not our philosophy of government. You see, it says they believe there's a God. And notice that it's the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. They're saying, listen up. Every political entity in America is telling you there is a creator. There is a God. We're acknowledging that. We're telling the world that we believe that. France doesn't believe that. They had a very secular revolution. A lot of nations, we did. And, and so that we're, we're telling the whole world this. Now, actually, that is the first step in limiting government and having a government that works the way God wants it to because the tendency of all government for 5,500 years in the history of the world, recorded history of mankind, is government tends to eventually believe that it is God. And that it can decide what's right and wrong and tell you what you can and can't do and what you're allowed. And so this acknowledgement was the first step in saying, hey, government, listen up. We're telling you you're not the highest power. God's higher than you are. So what we did was we acknowledged there's a power higher than government. That's the first step in having a government that serves the people rather than rules the people. And so that's what we believe from the very beginning. It's interesting the way George Washington explained this because on the day that we finished the Bill of Rights, George Washington, the first president, on that day, he called the entire nation to stop and publicly thank God. He issued a proclamation for that. We actually own the proclamation. Why would George Washington say everybody in America, all of our government needs to stop and acknowledge God well, he tells us right here. This is what he explains. He said, it is the duty of all nations. And by the way, notice the word duty. The word duty in their, in their dictionary was defined as a legally binding contractual obligation. If you look up the word duty today on, on your smart device, it'll say that which one ought to do. I'll point out there's a huge difference between that which one ought to do and a legally binding contractual obligation. They said it's the legally binding contractual obligation of all what? Of all nations, not individuals. Governing bodies have a legally binding contractual obligation to do four things. What four things? To acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. That is the duty of nations. See, that's a political duty that we believe governments owed God, that governments needed to acknowledge God. And that's interesting because that is a very clear Bible teaching. If you look at Romans 1.28, the Scripture says, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God... He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. The scripture says if you stop being God conscious, your behavior will change. When you're God conscious, there are certain things you're just not going to do because it's the wrong thing to do. If you're not God conscious, you can decide what you want to do, have your own truth, have your own standards. And we used to believe that it was really important. By the way, if you look at verses 29 through 31, it tells you what your behavior comes like when you stop being God conscious. You read those verses, it's like reading the headline of the newspapers today. It sounds like America. See, when you stop being God conscious, your behavior changes, which is why, by the way, 
people say, oh, why do you guys have lawsuits over things like in God we trust or one nation or It's only two words, one nation or God. What's the big deal? The big deal is it helps keeps us God conscious. As long as we can stay God conscious, our behavior is different. Our government operates different than when it stops being God conscious. That's one of the things we understood and knew. So that was the first principle that made us different is we were not secular. We acknowledge that there's a God and we acknowledge that he's in charge of what goes on here. The second thing we said was they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, what we've done here is we said, hey, there's a certain set of rights that come from God. Now, inalienable is not a term that we use much today, but to say there's a certain set of rights that come from God, this is the second step in limiting government and helping government do what it's supposed to do because it establishes jurisdictions. Let me see if I explain it this way. I'm a cowboy from Texas. We have the ranch. We have the horses, the cows, the sheep, the goat, everything that goes with ranching in Texas. And on our ranch, I have a red pickup. Really like it. Use it a lot as a workhorse for me. I've had several generations of red pickups. I keep buying red pickups. I love red pickups. My son, however, has a black pickup. So while he wasn't watching, I spray painted his black pickup red because everybody needs a red pickup. No, actually can't do that. Now, I can spray paint anything I own red. I can spray paint my cows red. I can spray paint my pastures red. I can spray paint my roads red. But I can't spray paint his truck red because it doesn't belong to me. So what happens here is government has just been told, hey, government, there's a set of rights that don't belong to you. You cannot spray paint these red. They did not come from you. They are not yours. You cannot regulate them. You cannot touch them. They came from God. You have to leave them alone. So what we've done is we've established jurisdictions that there's only certain areas where government's allowed to operate. There's certain things that can't touch. Now, we're not really familiar with the term inalienable rights today, <clears throat> but that was a term that was used in the founding documents. And those that wrote the documents define it well. For example, John Dickinson, who not only helped with the Declaration, he signed the Constitution. John Dickinson said, an inalienable right is a right which God gave to you and which no inferior power has a right to take away. If God told you you can do it, no government has the right to say you can't do it because it's a right God gave to you. You have the same thing from Alexander Hamilton, a signer of the Constitution. He said, inalienable rights are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They're written as with the sunbeam and the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by any moral power. In other words, these are rights that God gave. They didn't come from government. They're not in documents. These are God-given rights, and government has to respect them. You get the same thing from John Adams. John Adams said inalienable rights are antecedent to all earthly governments. They're rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. They're rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. These are rights that God give to us. Now, we'll look at some of those rights in a minute, but I want you to notice first the word antecedent. Notice he said these rights are Inalienable rights are antecedent. What's that mean? It means come before. He said, so inalienable rights come before earthly governments. Interesting. What is the first recorded earthly government in the history of mankind, either in the Bible or in secular history? 5,500 years recorded history. What's the first civil government recorded in the history of mankind? It actually is what appears in the Bible. It's the government that God established when Noah got off the ark in Genesis 9. When Noah got off the ark, God gave him seven laws. They're called the Noahide laws. Here's what you do with murder. Here's what you do with theft. It's the first civil government in the history of the world. Founding fathers said inalienable rights came before the first government. So if the first government is in Genesis 9, inalienable rights came in Genesis 1 through 8. And in Genesis 1 through 8, they identified almost two dozen rights that came before government ever existed. Clearly, government didn't create the rights because government wasn't created yet. 
And they were over here in Genesis 1 through 8. So as you go through this, you say, all right, so what are the rights that God gave to every individual, regardless of the place where you live, your gender, regardless of your race or ethnicity, regardless of the country? What did God give every individual in Genesis 1 through 8? Well, Sam Adams, who's called the father of the American Revolution, said, well, we told you that in the Declaration, among other inalienable rights, you had the right to life and to liberty and to property. Those are three things the Bible establishes very clear. So that's in addition to others. Well, 11 years later, we have now won the American War for Independence. We've now written a constitution. We now have a Bill of Rights. And in the Bill of Rights, they said, hey, remember we told you 11 years ago that among other rights, there was life, liberty, and property? Well, here's some of the other rights. First Amendment, this is called the Bill of Rights, first ten amendments. First Amendment, you have a right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. Government can't keep you from acknowledging God in public or saying God at graduation or putting a nativity scene out in public. Government can't stop you from expressing your faith. See, that's a God-given inalienable right. You have the right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. You have the Second Amendment right to defend yourself, what we call the right to keep and bear arms. God gave you the natural right to do that, Exodus 22.2, and I can give you lots of other passages. So government, you can't regulate our right to defend ourselves. Third Amendment, the sanctity of the home. The home doesn't belong to, to government. It belongs from God to the individual. So we get to control the home. Fourth is the right for due process. Uh, there's lots of verses on that, John 8, 12, and Proverbs 18, 17. The fifth is the right of private property. Out of the Ten Commandments, two of them deal with protecting private property. So the Bill of Rights is nothing more than listing of what government's not allowed to touch because these are rights that God gave to every individual. So that was our belief, and that was the second thing that our government was unique with. We said there is a God, and God gives a certain set of rights to every individual that government's not allowed to touch. And the third thing we said in the Declaration was that to secure these rights, what rights? Well, these inalienable rights. To secure inalienable rights, government are instituted among men. We have now been told why government exists. First and foremost, the reason for which it exists is to secure to us God-given rights. And now, sure, it exists to punish lawbreakers and to secure the borders and to watch the economy. But its first purpose, given by God all the way back in Genesis 9, he created civil government to make sure that individuals had the right to, to practice their inalienable rights. That's what had been violated by the world for all those years. That's why God wiped it out in the flood. So when he came back, he set up laws to help protect inalienable rights. So that was the belief we had. Now, significantly, you go back to the founding fathers, they affirmed this. James Wilson is not only a guy who signed the Declaration of the Constitution, he's an original justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, one of the first justices. He wrote the first law book in America. And in telling, and we own that original law book, it's pretty cool. In telling students why America had the American War for Independence, he said the principal object of government was to acquire a new security for the possession of those rights which we were previously entitled by the immediate gift of our all-wise, all-beneficent creator. In other words, the reason we had to have the American War for Independence was we used to have all these inalienable rights. We had them from Great Britain and the Magna Carta, and we had the British Bill of Rights. But then King George III came along and would not let us exercise our God-given rights. No longer did we have the right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. They had a state-established church, said, here's the denomination you'll go to, here's the Bible you'll use. We weren't even allowed to print a Bible in English in America because the king said what Bible we're going to use. And here's what he said on our self-defense. And, and so because we didn't have our inalienable rights, they said that's why we had to create a new security. We had to create a new government where we could go back to having the God-given rights because Great Britain used to give us that, but now they've taken them away. You have the same thing that comes from Sam Adams, again, the father of the American Revolution. 
He said government was originally designed for the preservation of the inalienable rights, and that's Genesis 9. When God created civil government, the Noahide laws, he did that to protect inalienable rights that he had given to people that weren't being protected. So, and by the way, go back to what Sam Adams said. Remember, he said first was the right to life, secondly to liberty, thirdly to property. Right to life is kind of interesting because today right to life means abortion. Now, obviously that wasn't what they were thinking back then. I mean, it's 200 years ago. Abortion wasn't an issue then. Who says so? Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. This is actually a book we own from 1808 on abortion in America back then. I can show you all sorts of pro-life laws back then. See, abortion didn't start with Roe v. Wade. What happened with Roe v. Wade was for the first time in our history, they said abortion is legal, not that abortion exists. Abortion existed back with Moses and those guys because in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, the Bible says you don't harm an unborn child. So all the way back with Moses, they already had pro-life laws going. We had pro-life laws going in America. So when they said a right to life, they literally meant a right to life. All this changed with abortion is our technology. You know, abortions, since there were people who were pregnant, there were always people who didn't want to be pregnant. There was always a way to end a pregnancy. What's happened is technology changes. I'll give you an example. Let me take you back to the time of James Wilson, <clears throat> that very first law book. Look what he told law students about abortion in America. He said, students with consistency, beautiful and undeviating, human life from its commencement to its close is protected by the common law. That's the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution. Protected by the common law. He said... In the contemplations of law, life begins when the infant is first able to stir in the womb, and by the law, that life is protected. Now, notice he said, as soon as you know there's life inside, at that point, civil law kicks in, uh, the common law right there, Seventh Amendment kicks in, you're protected. At that point, when there's life inside. But the question is, how long did it take you to know there was life in the womb? Well, back then, probably a trimester. You're probably two, three months long before you know for sure. This, but whatever it was, as soon as you know there was life inside, at that point, it's protected. At that point, you can't do anything to harm life because that's given by God. It's striking. Today, the technology is such that eight days after conception, you know there's life in the womb. Their point was, as soon as you know there's life in the womb, at that point, that life is protected because it came from God. And actually, John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration, he was one of the preachers that, among the signers. Uh, he, he was president of Princeton University. He gave lectures to his students saying, kids, this is, abortion is one of the things that makes a diff America different from Europe. Because in Europe, they think that parents create kids. They think that parents give life to kids. So in Europe, they let the parents abort the kids. He said, not here in America. We know that life comes from God. It's God that creates life. It's not parents that create life. So we don't allow abortions here in America. And that's what he told the students. He said, a perfect right in a state of natural liberty is the right to life. He said, here in America, we deny the power of life and death to parents. Parents don't create life. God creates life. So you see, for them, when they said first is right to life, they literally meant that. Now, I will tell you, politically, I've been involved in politics a long time. I've held political office for nine years. I've trained thousands of people for office, recruited hundreds of people for office. There's probably 100 members of Congress that are very good friends. We text back and forth. Very involved in the political arena. Everything from dog catcher up through being consultant to president of the United States and races. Been involved in all this kind of stuff. And I will tell you that any candidate you give me, if you will tell me where they are on the life issue with a 90% degree of certainty, I will tell you how they will vote on every other issue they will face. If I know where they are on life, I will tell you where they are on climate change. I will tell you where they are on the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. I will tell you how they vote on the capital gains tax. I will tell you what they do on regulatory reform. Because you see, as the founders pointed out, Life is the first of your inalienable rights. And if you don't 
respect the first one, you don't respect the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Once you're off the highway, you're off the highway until you get back on, you're off the highway. So life is the key issue. And to this day, when I deal with any race, I want to know first where they're on life. And then I'm pretty about 90% sure of how they're going to vote on every other issue. I've just found that to be true over all the years we've done politics. So that's the third thing that was pointed out was, all right, number one, what you have is we believe there's a divine creator. Number two, we believe the creator gives a certain set of rights. And number three, we believe the primary purpose of the government is to protect God-given rights. That's what made us unique from other nations. And notice, these are all God-centered. You see, a secular government can't be a limited government. You cannot point to a secular government in the world today that is a limited government. You can't point to France. You can't point to Germany. France, if you try to share the gospel, you will go to jail. They call that proselytization. It is a crime. You don't get free speech. And if you're in Germany and try to homeschool your kids, you will go to jail because kids don't belong to parents. They belong to the state. As a matter of fact, in Scotland, when you're, <clears throat> when you're born, they have, uh, they have a, a government official go to the hospital and register that child. And from that point on, they will make the decisions about what that child's going to do and how it's going to live. Parents don't own children. And I can take you through all the other nations. I can take you through Turkey or Italy or Spain or Morocco. I can take you all across Anywhere you have a secular government, it is not a limited government. It thinks it is God, and it acts like God, and it makes the decisions on life and death and career and everything else. So that's why we never allowed ourselves to become secularists. And, and now, you know, again, it's so common. We're told, well, government's secular, and Christians should stay out of that. And No, that's not biblical. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Thomas Jefferson, the least religious of our founding fathers, the first book, book he wrote was in 1781. Inside the Jefferson Memorial, they have quotes out of that book. They're engraved in stone there. I want you to see this quote that our least religious founding father gave us. He says, Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we remove their only firm basis? Newsflash, what does our least religious founding father think is the only firm basis of national liberties? He said, It is a conviction. Notice the word conviction. It is a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are of the gift of God, that they're not to be violated, but with His wrath. The only way you have national liberties is to have a conviction up here that these liberties come from God, and if you tick Him off, we're all going to be in trouble. He's going to get mad, and we're, we're going to... And that's what he pointed out. He said, indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, and His justice won't sleep forever. Don't tick off God. See, that's why we didn't want a secular government. You wanted God's blessings. We sing God bless America all the time. My gosh, if we want God to bless America, give him something to work with. You know, righteousness exalts a nation. You have to do things that won't tick him off. And that's what we understood. That's the only way you preserve national liberties. That's the way we had operated for over two centuries. So don't, don't become secular in thinking. Um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that made us different from other nations. Again, it's not arrogance. This is, God will do this for any nation that will apply these principles. This applies to all people at all times. Uh, and as Pastor Ron mentioned, if you're interested in this stuff out on the table, we've got a catalog. Founder's Bible, we show you the Bible verses that built specific aspects of the government. We have an app on that. We have lots of materials. But let me close with a Bible verse. That Bible verse is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This Bible verse says, All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, this is where we get the belief the Word of God is inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. It's true, period. Why did God give us an inspired scripture? He tells us in the next verse. He said that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The reason God gave us the scripture was so that we would be equipped for every good work. 
whether it's civil government or business, whether it's education, whether you name it. The Bible equips us for that, but it doesn't equip us unless we know that, that word of God. You have to know God's word to apply it. There's a president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, our sixth president. In 1848, he did a book for 10-year-old Americans showing 10-year-old Americans how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. Now, you can imagine what would happen today if any president did a Bible for 10-year-old Americans showing them how to read the Bible cover to cover once a year. He did. This is what he told 10-year-olds back then. He said, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated on as the Bible. This is the book you spent your time in. He says, I myself for many years have made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. Now, if that's not your practice, let me encourage you to make that a practice. Uh, reading through the Bible once every year is not a hard thing to do. You can read 3.2 chapters a day. That takes about 15 minutes of time. Um, it's not a hard thing, and if you want to, you can use all the many Bible apps that are out there to read it to you while you're combing your hair, or brushing your teeth, or getting ready. It'll read it in 15 minutes. You can go through the Bible once every year. He said, I... I and that was practice back then. We taught the Bible in schools. That's how you learn to read. We went through the Bible once a year. That's what the country did. So he said, I've made it my practice to go through the Bible. Now remember, he's telling 10-year-old kids, I go through the Bible once every year. He says, my custom is to read four or five chapters every morning immediately after rising from bed. It employs about an hour of my time and seems to me the most suitable manner of beginning. Now, he was serious in Bible study because you can do it in 15 minutes. But he did four to five chapters, not three chapters. And he spent time meditating on it. You've got time to do this. Do you know that the national average right now is Americans spend 67 hours a week in social media. To take 15 minutes out of that to read the Bible every day, easy. I mean, we can, we can give up social media for something this good. He continues. He said, I do this every day, three, four to five chapters an hour. He says, I've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit, which I now recommend you. Ten-year-olds, listen up. Here's how I read the Bible. Here's how I recommend you read it. He said, I always read it with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. I'm always reading the Bible not for devotional purposes, not to get spiritually blessed. I'm looking for application. I want something that will change the way I think, my wisdom. I want something that will change the way I act, my virtue. I'm looking for application, whether that be to government or to education or, or to law or to economics or to business. Or to, I'm looking for application. See, that's the way to read God's Word. So let me challenge you to do that. God's Word applies to every single aspect of our life. It tells us how to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He's the bridge that we need to get to. All of that, how to start with God, how to end with God, all of it's there. Everything you need in between and how to live. That's what's made America different. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share. Bye. Thank you so much, David. Good stuff, huh? Wow. Praise God. Uh, let's uh, stand for our benediction. But may the God of hope continue to reveal his love and grace to us that we might give him the glory he deserves. God bless you all.